0: Shabnam Malik joins me to discuss the world of cannabis branding. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So today's episode is a primer on the upcoming cannabis and IP course that will happen during our virtual Intellectual Property Summer Institute, which kicks off on May 24th. You can learn more about the program at law.unh.edu slash IPSI. Ipsy is a long-time program at the law school that we're happy rebooted last year after a few years off, so it's very exciting the last couple of years to have it come back as an online program so people can tune in from anywhere in the world. So, I'm very happy for you to join me today, all the way from California, this is a treat for me. Usually, I random people around the building I collect for this, so thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. So, so
0: the world of cannabis has been exploding in the last decade. This must make the realm of intellectual property more and more important as the market grows.
1: Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. In fact, just yesterday, I was on LinkedIn and I saw a colleague had posted, a recent article saying, uh, branding is becoming really important in the cannabis industry. And I felt like responding and saying, no, duh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been really important in the cannabis industry. And I think that, um, one of the sort of key reasons is because a big part of branding or trademark protection and really trademark law is the concept of consumer protection. You know, that's really, I'd say one big part, if not the main driver behind uh, trademark law and trademark protection in the United States, the idea is that we want consumers or patients or even any purchaser in a supply chain to be able to rely on a certain product by simply looking at just one or two things, a symbol, a name, you know, something that identifies the quality of the goods and services, and that is what a trademark is, and it's meant to prevent people from thinking they're getting A when in fact they're buying B. So, to uh, you know, sort of import that into the cannabis industry, it's potentially even more important to think about what brands mean and brand protection because this is an industry where the product is not only high, highly regulated but has major implications. You consume the wrong product and you know, your fun Friday night or your backache you thought you were trying to uh, give some therapy to has all of a sudden taken a totally different turn. So as far as I'm concerned, we should have all been thinking about, and I think a lot of sophisticated companies have been thinking about branding in this industry um, for at least a decade, if not more.
0: It seems like the pharmaceutical industry is the kind of the closest thing to equate to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the pharmaceutical industry is a great analog. I think Um, uh, Maybe, and I I hope I don't get slayed for saying this, but I think the alcohol industry is actually a great analog as well. Um, Anything where there's a a highly regulated environment and where the concept of consumer protection is really um, sensitive because we don't want people making mistakes in their purchasing. And I think that goes absolutely for cannabis products that are marketed and sold uh, as medical cannabis, as well as cannabis products marketed and sold for adult use. We wanna protect all those consumers.
0: Uh, With cannabis still being illegal on the federal level, this must cause some serious issues regarding federal trademark registrations.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you asked. So, this is the, the problem. So, actually, when we talk about the pharmaceutical industry and the alcohol industry, you know, they have a lot of privilege to use a, a current word. And that is that they can protect those industries and those businesses can protect their uh, brand identity and their trademarks at a federal level. So, what does that mean? that means you get a trademark registration of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and that comes with a certain amount of, actually, privileges, Um, one of which is that you get constructive rights throughout the United States. So if your pharmaceutical product is on the shelf in one state and you catch somebody selling uh, an infringing product bearing the same identity or name in another state, you can use your federal rights with some limited exception, trademark law nerds, I I understand there's limited exceptions, but by and large, you can use your federal trademark rights uh, to enforce against somebody in another state. The cannabis industry doesn't have that because the cannabis uh, industry and cannabis businesses cannot secure a federal trademark registration in connection with their cannabis goods and services at the USPTO. A company that's positioned in one state, let's say Massachusetts, and sells an infused chocolate product uh, cannot enforce against another company, say in California, using um, the same or nearly the same name, also selling infused chocolate products. So why is this dangerous? I mean, earlier I said consumer protection is a big deal, and it is, but it's especially dangerous now where we have... Uh, many states that offer adult use or medical cannabis. And what we see is a lot of cannabis tourism. So someone in Massachusetts may very well go to California, either for cannabis tourism, or maybe they just go to California as people often do. And they walk into a dispensary that they're absolutely allowed to do if they're 21 and over, and they see that product. They think it's the same, let's say, one milligram per serving product that they're used to. They consume it oops, this thing actually has five milligrams per serving. And like I said earlier, they have a terrible experience. Um, A cannabis company right now is actually in a a really tough position and all but cannot prevent that from happening. And the reason is because federal trademark rights are not uh, acknowledged or or conferred upon companies in the cannabis industry um, for use in connection with their cannabis activities.
0: I mean, what would happen if just perfect world, especially from your industry, there was federal decriminalization or legalization that went through? It, that must mean a free for all of lawsuits if, if, for, uh, nationwide if that happens.
1: Well, that's, I'm so glad you asked. So, you know, it's actually interesting. And I, uh, in, in the past probably about two years, I really started trying to talk to people about this idea that. You know, federal legalization or descheduling doesn't actually answer all of the problems from a branding perspective. So, on the one hand, what I think we will see a flood of are trademark applications at the USPTO for you know Acme brand marijuana. The goods identification says pre-rolled, you know, cannabis flower or something of that nature. Um, two things are going to happen. So, we're going to see that flood of applications, I think, for sure. But the 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 other thing that happens, and we see this. Um, after the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill is it's not like when something is legalized at any level, federal or state level, that you have a law that says, "Okay, marijuana is legal. And then tomorrow morning is just a wholesale and industry erupts and people do whatever they want. That's not at all what happens. As the lawyers in the room know, what happens is the regulators get involved and you have regulatory agencies that need to set parameters for how this thing works, whether it's the manufacturing of it, the cultivating of it, the dispensing of it, all of it, the whole bit. In some cases, new regulatory agencies are formed to do this in nearly all states. That's what's happened. Sometimes existing agencies have taken it over, sometimes new ones. um, With alcohol,
0: there's entirely different agencies to take care of that, for example.
1: Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And so just because marijuana is... uh, taken off of Schedule 1 and let's say it becomes federally lawful, that doesn't mean that everything that you do with the product is then totally lawful. The FDA will get involved, the FTC will get involved, all manner of different things happen. And so it's entirely possible for much of what we consider to be cannabis products to actually not be lawful for interstate, for use in interstate commerce, or even for manufacturer to sell um, uh, uh, under federal guidelines. And so what So long as the product is unlawful or even uh, uh, prohibited by the FDA or under, say, the FDCA, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office will still not grant those trademark applications, and the federal courts, by and large, won't recognize those rights. And you see this happening right now with hemp products. And the best example is food products that have hemp-derived CBD in them. Those are products that the FDA has said, no, 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 you can't put those into interstate commerce. We haven't determined the safety of them, uh, any sort of regulations for them. So, right now, that's a no no at a federal level. So, when you apply to register a trademark at the USPTO and it says your goods identification says, you know, chocolate milk with CBD in it, derived from hemp, less than uh, 0.3% THC. Um, You're still not going to get that trademark registration because those goods, because they contain hemp derived CBD and it's a food product or a beverage in that case, is still disallowed by the FDA. So this is all to say that when cannabis is hopefully legalized at a federal level, we're not going to all of a sudden get these trademark registrations. What we're going to get is a long period of time where we have to wait for the regulatory agencies to weigh in.
0: Are some states kind of finding ways to make do with the current situation?
1: Yeah, so lots of states are, and the states that uh, have adult use regimes, so like Massachusetts, Uh, California, obviously, Colorado, pretty soon New York, um, they all have a regulatory structure that lives underneath their statutes and that takes care of all this and that creates essentially an entire working system within the state for everything from the cultivation of marijuana all the way through to the uh, sale of it, the dispensing of it. And the states, actually, many of them have done a really great job. Some of them, like California, are really still struggling with the licensing, with the taxing. Some of them are really struggling with um, the implementation of an equitable program that serves all the folks who have been harmed by the war on crime and war on drugs. And... um, And so yeah, the states are actually a great model. I think you could probably pick and choose a handful of states and if the federal government were to legalize marijuana, that would excellent idea would be to put together a panel of experts to sort of figure out which states have done the best job in the most important areas and use those as models. Um, I can say that there is a good amount of dissatisfaction right now with some of the regulatory issues in the state of California, primarily around um, some of the taxing Uh, A lot of localities still prohibit any sort of commercial cannabis activity, which then, of course, means that localities that allow it are very expensive. It's hard to enter the market. Um, It's just it's a hard market to survive in and to get into. Despite the size of it, it's a huge market, but it's it's hard to survive. And actually, one of the really interesting things is, is despite now uh, several years functioning cannabis industry in many states, what we aren't seeing a lot of is like uh, uh, brand loyalty, kind of brand stickiness. We're, we still see companies really struggling with developing real relationships with consumers in particular from state to state. And I think this has a lot to do with the inability to enforce trademarks at a federal level, um, a huge lack of understanding around what kind of rights you can develop in trademarks and because it's a a hard product right now you know it's a a hard ag product to consistently deliver to perform um you can't obviously take a seed or a clone from state to state so even if you are a multi-state operator your product is often a smidge different from state to state because your core one of your core ingredients is by definition not the same and so it's hard to develop that kind of relationship with consumers when um product reliability is just like this impossible thing to capture Um, but there's also a lot of great companies doing a lot of terrific stuff with brands and we see a lot of them come out of california legacy companies who have had a long-standing um, relationship with patients in the state of california have been really responsible companies great branding great packaging and they have expanded through various licensing deals or just organic growth Um, and so i think we will start to see some companies emerging with some strong brand loyalty
0: from an advocacy perspective, I mean, how important is it for the smaller, especially as the uh, regulations start coming down on in a lot more states and federally? Hopefully, um, do you see? Do you encourage your smaller clients to really step up their trademark and enforcement game as they go before the large players begin entering the market?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important for smaller companies or legacy companies to really be doubling down on their branding efforts and brand protection. Part of it is that there are big companies coming in. There is a lot of acquisition. So gosh, you know, why not position yourself to either be a strong player or maybe an acquisition target. And part of it is that we, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but we have so little room for error in this industry. So if, you know, consumer harm happens, if, Um, counterfeiting happens, infringement happens, it all inevitably comes back and reflects poorly on our industry. And it's unfortunate. And so we, uh, there's this constant pressure to, you know, sort of always be the good guys in the room, always be the good actors. And that is, that's what part of, you know, solid branding, um, strong trademark rights, enforcing those trademark rights. It's all part and parcel of that. It's part of being a good, corporate citizen, basically. Um, and right now is the time to do it as federal legislators are potentially looking at some shifts in, in federal policy and federal statute. Yeah, we wanna be out there with our you know, best face forward and um, showing uh, both the believers and non-believers that this is a great industry with some solid products and some really good players who want to take care of consumers, who want to be compliant, who want to put great product out there on the market. And that's all the way from cultivators. I know some amazing farmers in Northern California who are just downright good people and deserve the protection of the law, um, all the way to dispensaries and product manufacturers who are really bringing some terrific products to the market. Um, and I mean, really shifting things and giving people an opportunity to find therapies or even recreation in a different model. Um, I love it. I think they should be given the privilege of, of the law in all ways, including trademarks.
0: Lastly, what does the work of your firm, Brandon branch look like on a day-to-day basis? You and Amanda Conley must be quite busy.
1: We are actually, as you may know, my law partner Amanda and I taught this course together last year and it was so much fun. Um, it's great. So our day-to-day workday is probably different, I'd say, than a lot of other lawyers. Part of it is because of the industry we serve. Part of it is because we're a boutique firm. We're both big firm expats. So we really, we got that training in big firms, but we wanted a different lifestyle. We were mostly virtual. We got an office and then we became virtual again after the pandemic, of course. But um, I'd say some of the unique things about our firm is our relationship with our clients. We counsel them in a really um, confident, but informal way. I'd say we tell them the truth, you know, here's the risk, here's the problems, here are the challenges, and here are some opportunities for you. Um, One of the things serving the cannabis industry has done is it's expanded our practice. So Amanda and I are basically trained trademark lawyers, but in the past, six and a half years, we've become all manner different kinds of lawyers that are sort of offshoots of trademark. And that's the benefit of serving the cannabis industry. It it forces you out of one area, maybe your comfort zone and you become an expert really in other areas. So for us, that's included labeling and packaging compliance, other kinds of regulatory compliance that have to do with product development and product identity and brand identity. Um, We do a lot of advertising law compliance and we do a ton of agreements work, which I actually hadn't done so much of before. And now it's like the bread and butter of what we do. And for me, the cannabis industry has really just changed my professional development. I do work like teaching this class. Um, I do a lot of education, both Amanda and I do. We teach other lawyers. We teach business people. We actually started a bar association to support lawyers that serve the cannabis industry industry. It's basically like turned me into an entrepreneur in some ways. It's, um, so I'm not just like, you know, go to my desk, bill hours, go home. I'm like, go to my desk, figure out what next thing I want to throw my head into. Is it the unlawful use doctrine and how he may, you know, overturn it or attack it? Is it federal legalization? Is it the latest in a trademark lawsuit that's pending? Can I blog about it? Um, is there a young new attorney that wants to get to in the industry that I can mentor? It's just, it's a lot of stuff, not
0: just lawyering. So don't miss out on Cannabis and IP with Shevna Malik, which will be starting on May 24th. Sign up now. Space is limited. You can sign up at law.unh.edu slash IPSI. There are If you're a visiting student, you we do offer transferring credits. And if you're a legal professional, please do sign up. We are offering this to domestic and international professionals. Uh, go check that out now before you miss out at law.unh.edu/ipsi. Thanks for listening to the Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.